Well, this is a new year, and we are in an old book. Dad and I are still preaching in 2 Timothy. And this morning, our text is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And I just want to ask you, uh, have you ever wanted to hear from God? Well, this morning, I hope to convince you that you have and you will. And in 2 Timothy, this is Paul's last book he's written that's in the New Testament. And he thinks he's leaving Timothy well prepared. But how is he doing that? Again, our text is 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. This is the Word of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, this morning, would you speak to us through your word? Give us a confidence. Give us, give us a hope. And give us courage to hear from you and to believe what you say. Lord, for you alone have the words of eternal life. Let us hear from you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. St. Augustine, that great church father of the 3rd and 4th centuries, lived a life of struggle prior to becoming a Christian. He sought meaning in life through many different avenues, from different philosophies to even a a form of hedonism. And he uh, wrestled with all that. He wrestled with meaning. And one day, now to be sure his mother was a Christian, He was familiar with Christianity, and he was deeply anguished in his life, and he was searching. He was in the garden, wrestling with all of this, when he heard children next door playing, and they had this chant, take up and read, take up and read. And he was like, what game do they play where they say that? He didn't know. But he listened, and he, he did. He picked up his Bible that he had there, And he opened it, and the first passage he found, he read. Not the best strategy, but God used it anyways. And so he listened to what God said there, how God had spoke. And finally, Augustine had listened to God. And so it was through reading God's word that Augustine, the great saint, his conversion came. Paul, in our text, is in essence telling Timothy to take up. And read. See, God has spoken. It is, all scripture is breathed out by God. And verse 16 is Paul's expounding of what he means when he says in verse 15 that the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation. And then he has this transition. And now, normally in Greek, and especially in Paul, there are these. Transition words, often untranslated, and they're in every sentence. It's kind of how you know you're onto a new sentence, a new thought. Well, in this passage, there's nothing. It's just a straight, abrupt change. All I have to say is Paul's onto something, and he's just like, this is all true because of this. He doesn't even have time to write a two-letter word because he's ready to talk about Scripture and how important it is and how powerful it is because he has confidence in it. It's God-breathed. Paul puts all of his eggs in the scripture basket. 
As Timothy ministers in Ephesus, Paul, Paul's like, you have Scripture. And Scripture is breathed out by God. It is the thing useful. It is the thing that equips. And so Paul knew, Paul had confidence that the Scriptures provided Timothy all he needed to be equipped for the ministerial task before him. Paul knew it was breathed out by God. It was God's very words. And Timothy, for his part, if he would listen to God's word, to take and read, he would be equipped for what lies ahead, no matter how difficult it might be. So in essence, Timothy, I mean, Paul is saying to Timothy, I may not be around, but you have all you need in the scriptures. And Timothy, you know, had this temptation, uh, at least, I don't know how strongly, but at least it would be there, to lose confidence in the message that was given once for all, delivered once for all to the saints, that because of the difficulties he faced as a pastor, the false teaching was running rampant, immorality was everywhere, people were having more success than him in some ways. And by more success, I mean maybe more followers, more money. Not necessarily success as we define it, as faithfulness to God's word. But he might have had this temptation to lose confidence. But Paul encouraged him that scripture had the message which transforms and gives hope. And if in 2023 you're sitting there and you're ready to lose confidence... In God's word, let me encourage you to, like Paul, have confidence in it. Because we do live in troubled times where it is tempting, it can be tempting, to want to find something else to give meaning. To lose confidence that this, this is actually God's word. This is actually God speaking to us. But we need to know that it is sufficient to tell us what we should believe about who God is and what he's done. And then how we should then, in turn, live for him. We, like Timothy, need confidence in God's word. But in our text, Paul has the utmost confidence that Timothy is up to the task. Not because of who Timothy is or the the personality he has, but because Timothy knows the scriptures. And he knows they're breathed out by God. And so because God has spoken, we must... Listen. We must listen because God has spoken. But why? Why do we listen to God's word? Well, it has authority. God's word has authority. There is an authority in Scripture. I know your outline says source, so that's where we are, by the way. I changed it. Of all things, I changed it. The authority of Scripture. But it has the authority that it has because of its source. And what is its source? Look at verse 16. It is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. This means that Scripture is God's Word. It comes with His authority. It's like a letter written by a king with a new edict, command, he, he will seal the letter with wax and his signet ring. And all know that signet ring. So when the letter is delivered, it's not the king who hands the letter. 
It's the messenger who delivers the letter. But the messenger delivers the letter with the full authority of the king. And so it is with his word. It is God's word delivered to us by faithful men. It has authority because it comes from him. It is to be believed and obey. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed does not depend upon testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore is to be received because it is the Word of God. We believe it because God says it. And God has authenticated his message. If we look at Hebrews 2, we see that uh, 2, 3 through 4. It was declared, the message of great salvation was declared to us at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So God himself has attested to his word. Jesus also authenticates it in Matthew 5, 17, where he says, Jesus commenting on the uh, the Bible, God's word, scripture, Matthew 5, 17, he says this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus had utmost confidence in God's word because God proclaimed it, and he knew it was true and would be fulfilled. And then the resurrection is the ultimate authenticator of God's word in that Jesus predicted his, he would die and rise again, and when he did, the miracle of all miracles, a man walks himself out of a grave, everything else he says then becomes authoritative. But how did God deliver this message? How does God deliver his word? How did scripture become God-breathed? Well, we have a small hint of that in 2 Peter, where he shares his... Um, kind of a theology of it. 2 Peter 1, 21, where Peter says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you see that the Holy Spirit authenticates it in that he is carrying these men along. It is God, through the Holy Spirit, working to produce the scriptures. At first they were spoken, and then they were recorded, and in the New Testament, uh, a lot of it was written first. But men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, the Westminster Confession is helpful. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at various times and in diverse ways to reveal himself and to declare his will to the church. Afterwards, in order to better preserve and propagate the truth, it pleased the Lord to commit this holy into writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures most necessary, 
the former ways of God revealing his will to his people now being ceased. So basically God, God said it, God recorded it, and then God has maintained it through our day. And that, so much so that, that we're not expecting an appendix to be added. There's no book after Revelation, and there never will be, because God has, is, is finished revealing all we need to know, what we need to believe to know him, and what we need to do to serve him. Now, when Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God, what does all mean? What does that mean? Now, some, at a minimum, you would say, well, Paul knew the Old Testament, so it's the Old Testament. But what about the New? Is the New Testament also breathed out by God? Well, I believe that Paul, when he says all Scripture, is including the New Testament. At least what he knew of it, and, and at least what he knew the other apostles were writing. That he had that in mind when he said all. And I'll give you a few examples, and I, I had to pare down a lot of examples, but here we go. One, in 2 Timothy, the very book he's writing, Paul equates his gospel with the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. Paul says this, um, Remember Christ Jesus risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound in, with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. And so there he equates his gospel of Jesus Christ, who died and rose again and prophesied in the Old Testament as with the word of God. Peter, for his part, equates Paul's writing with scripture. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16, says this, um, I'll, I'll skip ahead here. Uh, da, da, da. There are some things in them, that is in Paul's writings, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. They're saying they twist Paul's words, just like they pre twist the other scriptures. So Peter um, equates Paul's writings with Scripture. And then in 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25, he says this. He uses an Old Testament quotation and then has a modern application. Since then you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. What word remains forever? This word is the good news that was preached to you. So the preaching of Peter, of Jesus Christ, the good news, the gospel, is equated to the word of the Lord. And so when Paul says all scripture, he means all scripture. The whole thing. Is, is breathed out by God and therefore authoritative. But it's right here at this very point on the authority of Scripture that many today start to doubt because they don't want this to be the authority on the matters of ultimate importance. They don't want it to be authoritative to, 
to shape how they live their lives. Instead, they would rather find another authority, whether it be themselves or something else. But Paul had confidence precisely because it was the Word of God. And Keller has this quote, and it's a long one, so here we go. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God essentially of your own making, and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and a genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrages you or that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship and marriage, Will you know that you've gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination? So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. And so we can have confidence that this is actually God's word and it contains his authority. And he requires us what to believe and what to do. And so we know it is authoritative, but we also need to know that it is powerful, that there is, pow- that, that there is a power of Scripture. Powerful. God's Word is powerful. God spoke, and it happened. He created the universe and the earth through His mere Word. Jesus spoke. And the waves became still. Still. He spoke, and a man walked out of a grave four days after dying. God's word is powerful. And in our passage, it has the power to transform people from rebels to members of God's family, from enemies of God to friends of God. Look at verse 16, where it says that the scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Which, if you think about it, is a manner of transformation, all four of them. Because it is to teach us what we do not know. It is to train us to to continue as well as to do, do more righteousness. It is to transform our whole life. And when we sin or fall short, it is there to reprove us. When our thinking is wrong, it is there to reprove us and tell us that it is wrong. But then it has the correction, the grace of God, which says, ah, but here is the right way. Here is the good way. And that you are forgiven and made new and empowered by the blood of Christ to live It is powerful. It's powerful to transform. The training, the teaching, and the training in righteousness provides us with doctrine and life. And I'll say this again. What we believe and what we do. The Westminster Confession here says this. All of these, that is the books of the Bible, are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. Faith in life being what we believe, what we do. 
And then it provides us for what happens when we go astray of those things. It reproves us. It, it shows us where we're wrong. But then it corrects us and gives us the grace to turn around and go anew after God. It is a powerful word. And the power is in the story. What story does this book tell us? What power does it tell us? What story does it tell us? Well, it starts at the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And he created Adam and Eve to dwell with him in the garden. And it, God call, saw that it was good. But Adam and Eve, enticed by the serpent, they rebelled against God, disobeyed. And how did God respond? He, did he respond by um, how I might respond as a parent if, when my kids rebel? No. God responded with a promise. The promise of a redeemer who would put an end to the work of the serpent. And God would reiterate that promise to Abraham. That Abraham, though he was old, would have a child, a seed, who would bless the whole world. And with Moses, God promises to dwell with his people and then to send a prophet like Moses who would lead his people out of slavery and into freedom to worship and serve him. And God reiterated that promise to David that there would be a king to sit on his throne forever to rule with righteousness and to bring righteousness upon the earth. And the amazing thing is, is that no matter how rebellious God's people were, how little they regarded these promises, God kept his promises. So that when he sent Jesus Christ to fulfill his promise, it, it was fulfilled. It was done. And Jesus comes and redeems the whole world through his death and resurrection as promised by God. And Jesus points to a day when he will return and bring the full inheritance to God's people and put an end, a final end, to sin. Scripture has, a, has power because of this story. And this story is powerful because it points to the powerful one, which is Jesus Christ. Scripture should point to Jesus. And it has power when it does. Look at Luke 24, 27. Jesus, this is the day Jesus rose from the dead. People are starting to hear that people are claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. And some of his disciples, not the twelve, but some of the others that followed Jesus, were walking on the road to Emmaus. And up, up comes along this stranger, who happens to be Jesus, and they're like, haven't you heard about all of this? Like, like what does it mean? Like, what is happening? They, these women report that he is, the tomb is empty. And Jesus, this is what he does next. Um, and I wish I were there for this uh, Sunday school lesson. The first Sunday school lesson, by the way, because it was Sunday. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus walked them through the Old Testament and says, that was about me. 
That was about me. Do you see now? That was about me. And then their eyes were open and they realized they were walking and talking with Jesus. And so Scripture ultimately points to Jesus. And if teaching of Scripture doesn't point to Jesus, then it's not complete. The teaching of Scripture must speak a good word, just as Jesus' blood speaks a, a good word, a better word than the blood of Abel. In Hebrews 12, how does the, how does, what does Jesus' blood speak? It says to this, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is the blood of Abel? What word does it speak? Well, if you remember, Abel was murdered by his brother Cain. And God comes to Cain and says, Behold, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. And it's crying out for justice, for a just retribution for what Cain had done. But, but Jesus' blood, who was murdered, and it, his blood is in the ground, what does Jesus' blood call out for? Grace, grace, forgiveness. So that though you deserve something, you get the better thing. You get forgiveness and life with God. Scripture must ultimately point to Jesus as we teach it, as we read it. And people can forget this power of Scripture because they want to either add things to it or take things away. But they also lose the wonder and majesty of God's grace, of how Christ, the perfect one, can love you and me, the sinner, can love our neighbor, the sinner, can love our family, the sinner, But it, it's, direct, it's at this point that Scripture has power because it points us to Christ. To His person and work. That He is the Son of God. And yet He died and rose again. That we might be forgiven and have new life. But how often do we instead point to ourselves and say, like the Pharisees, Lord, I thank You that I'm not like this tax collector or sinner or whatever else. No, we don't point to ourselves. We point to Jesus because we need his grace. We need to say, Lord, thank you that you have given me Jesus. And it is scripture that proclaims him. So we need to run to our scriptures every day to get this fresh perspective. In the book, story, uh, in the book Habits of the Household, there's a story that I like, and I recommend this book, especially if you have a family. But it, it provides some good perspective on um, the disciplines of grace. But anyways, he tells a story, and I think it's a true story, of his son waking up with a nightmare, thinking there's a monster in his room. And the dad comes and says, <clears throat> son, there's no monster in your room. But the, the son is convinced there is. And so his dad plays a game with him and looks everywhere, like under the bed. He's like, is he under here? Ah, no, he's not under here. And then he looks in the closet. And he looks everywhere else in the room. And he doesn't find a monster. And he does this because he wants his son to know the reality of the situation. His son has woken up confused, thinking there's a monster but his dad is there to comfort him and show him, no, there is no monster, and beside that, I am the one here with you, and I love you. 
And he equates that to um, reading your Bible every day or, or having a quote-unquote quiet time every day. And that we, it's not something we need to check off, but it's that every day we need to have our, rea- we need to get back to reality. That Jesus loves us and has died for us and grace is available to us. And we need to come back to that every day to, to, be a, to awake to, a, to that reality, the true reality every day despite what Satan might be getting us to think every morning when we wake up or when we read the news or we check Facebook. We need, to, we need to reorient ourselves to reality. And that reality is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead that we might have life. Now, because Scripture is authoritative and powerful, the people of God have a ministry of Scripture. A ministry of Scripture. Just like Timothy, the minister is equipped by the Word to preach the Word, as we read in verse 17, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, the man of God here, I believe, is the the elder, the pastor, in their official capacity. That, That Timothy here is the man of God who is competent and equipped. But that doesn't mean it doesn't apply to every one of us. Because how else are we to lead our families, to to lead in our community, to lead at our work, and to proclaim the gospel unless we're equipped by the word? And so I think it it ultimately applies to us all. But this um, the, the man of God is to be equipped for every good work. And it is scripture that does that. Scripture does that. And so we come to a, um, a difference here of what, what is it that the minister does in his authority as a minister, as an elder? What power does he have? And we Presbyterians like our big words, so here we go. The minister has ministerial, believe it or not, ministerial authority and not legislative authority. Now, what does that mean? Ministerial authority just means that they minister the Word of God, that they preach the Word of God. They don't get to legislate or make new laws, make, make uh, rules that you must obey in order to be saved or in order to be right with God. Instead, they only proclaim what God has already said. That's the only authority the minister has is to tell you what's in this book. That's the authority they have. And they can only do that when they first know the word and obey the word and are transformed by the word. And then they preach and teach the word. And it's similar for all of us here today as we lead our lives. We need to be transformed by the word so that we can live it out and proclaim it to a watching and hurting world. And what is this equipped for every good work? I think that means, at a minimum, at least to preach the word. Um, 2 Timothy 4.2, which is two, two verses down, Timothy is going to be commanded to preach the word. So how is he equipped? He's equipped for every good work, and one of those good works is to preach the word, that ministerial authority, to tell people what's in God's word. And 
the minister's task, though, is, is not to, pre it's to preach the word, not uh, modern trends or psychology or philosophy or what works or what is attractive in this age. Though some of these things may be good, but we should study them and bring them under the authority of Scripture and not the other way around. That is, we don't bring, we don't bring Scripture under the authority of a psychology professor or, or a philosophy professor or philosopher. We bring their thinking and their reasoning and their studies under the authority of Scripture. And it is Scripture that makes the minister, the man of God, and ultimately all of us, it is that which equips and makes competent for the work that God has for us. And that's why in this denomination, we believe in training our ministers. Um, we believe in making sure that they know God's Word, that they have read and studied it, and they can properly interpret it. Because their job is to proclaim this word, not their own word, not their personality, but God's word. And they must do this faithfully. And we see in 2 Timothy just how prevalent this false teaching can be, how easy it is to go astray. Church history is replete with stories of people who teach false doctrine, and ultimately every time... Those around at that time went to this to convict and to find out what is true. And so we see that, again, the Westminster Confession is helpful here. The supreme judge by which all controversies of a religion are to be determined, and by which all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and whose judgment we are to rest can be no, nothing other than the Holy Spirit speaking through Scripture, speaking in Scripture. It's the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. And this, this is important. God speaks to us through Scripture. For, for in an era when everyone is told to find their own meaning, to find yourself, Right? Just be yourself. Follow your heart. Which is, which is a way of saying nothing matters. Nothing has any meaning inherent. You've got to go make your own meaning. And whatever you find meaningful, then it's meaningful to you. That's great, right? Which, however you've heard those phrases, that's how I'm using them. There is a sense in which God has created us uniquely that there is something that's more fun or interesting to me that I can go do. But that's not how most people use it, or especially in, in the scholarship, that they really find no meaning in life, and you must go make it whatever it is. And that's the world we live in. And so when, when we have the ultimate source of meaning before us, we, we can be a help to this world. We can show them that, no, actually, Jesus tells us to deny yourself which is not to deny who God made you to be, but to deny that old man, as Scott said earlier, that, that sinful self inside of you that wants to do all manner of, of sinful things. And yours might be pride or lust or, 
or greed. I don't know. But you're called to deny yourself in that sense, your sinful self. And the only way to do that is through God's word. We need to know what the creator says about the meaning of life. For we do not make our own meaning, but we find it in his word. We are told what it is. And spoiler alert, it is to love him and glorify him forever. To love and glorify him and enjoy him forever. There we go. I'll get there. But this means that we also need to be careful about who we listen to as they preach or teach the word of God. There are a lot of good uh, people who write books and YouTube videos but I dare say there are many more, and I'm very helped by those. Uh, Brooke will tell you, just yesterday I was listening to something. She's like, I don't ever know what's going to come out of your mouth because of something you've read or watched. But, I, um, but there's many more who are less than helpful at best, and at worst, heretical. And so we must be careful about what we consume on the Internet, though there's a lot of good out there. Because we can get a lot of false teaching. And that's true about a lot of things, not just theology. Um, with the movies we watch or, or the books we read or, or the content we consume, we, we must be careful. But especially with who we listen to, who we read regarding what God said in his word. And so to, to be discerning, uh, to, to know if someone's proclaiming God's word falsely or incorrectly or correctly, um, it helps if you know what it says, right? Just That makes sense. It kind of helps. And so that's why at this church we have Bible studies. So we encourage you, get involved in a Bible study or a small group or a journey group. Talk to Thad, starting some new ones, I think, I hope. If not, you are now. <laughs> so... Uh, And also, reading his word kind of helps. And being January 1st, in God's providence, as we talk about God's word today, it might be time to commit to read your Bible this year. Um, Thad has some. We didn't talk about this, but we both brought Bible reading plans to the church to serve you all because we love you. There's one out there that folds in half, and I if it's still standing on the table. That's the one Brooke has used the last two years, I think. And then I've got another one that's a two-year plant to read the whole Bible in two years. Now, that's the one D.A. Carson uses, who is holier and smarter than me and written way more and knows a lot. He's the guy you can trust when you read. Um, He reads the Bible every two years. He developed that, tweaked a plan to make it his own. And then there's another one that is out there that is... So the one Brooke uses is five days a week. So guess what? You get two miss, two skip days every, two cheat days every every week. But then there's one that is every day of the week. So you can do whatever you want. Part of it is uh, um, you don't want to feel like you're too far behind to keep going, right? So there is something to that. But they're out there, whatever you want. But just read it. Pick your own plan. There's other. You can Google Bible reading plans, and they'll come right on up. But I've printed some out. That yours out there? They're going to be. All right, all right. Um, but yeah, so that is read it. Find it, find it. And then tell somebody 
and be accountable to it. And, and just tell them, hey, I'm trying this year. Let's go. Let's, let's do this. Let's hold me accountable. Be, because when we read God's word, what do we get? We get the message about his son and a message about the grace and love on offer, as well as what we are to believe and do. And so this year, let us have confidence in God's word. Let us listen to it. Paul had confidence in it. He, he was pretty sure that, that because Timothy knew and had the scriptures, that God's word would be proclaimed and his people would be ministered to. Let us have confidence in scripture because in it, God speaks. He has spoken and he does speak. And then we live under the authority of that word, but we need to know the power of that word to transform us as it ministers to us. And the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you that you speak to us. Would you help us to listen? Help us to know you through your word. To know the depth of your power and your love, your strength and your grace. So that we are equipped to live with difficult people, with pleasant people. So that we're, we are equipped to, to deal with success, to deal with failure. Because we know your son Jesus. Proclaimed in the word and proclaimed as we proclaim him through our lives. And it's in his name we pray and ask these things. Amen.